people only knew the first skill they developed at the age of 20 weeks in their mother's womb was the skill of listening. It's the skill you learn before you see, before you talk, before you breathe, before you learn to feel, you learn how to listen. And at 32 weeks, you're able to distinguish your mother's voice from any other sound in the outside world. And that's really important because it's genetically programmed in us so so we can survive so that when we come out into the big wide world, we know which sound is the mother who's going to sustain us. So every single person is a natural born listener. And yet the minute we're born, the first thing we do is we scream. We want to be noticed and we want to shout out to the world. And I think it's from that point on, we forget that we're natural born listeners. And all we do is try and get noticed by talking more and trying to get our point across. The Giant Thinkers. Giant Thinkers Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, dear giants, Ram here. As always, it's a pleasure to connect with you through the airwaves. This is episode number 47. It has been a little while since the last episode. I've been juggling some major client work. One particular project even took me to New York for a couple of weeks where I actually got to meet up with a couple of you. And the big, big news is that I recently got engaged. I finally proposed to my partner, Vivian, of six years. There were months of planning and many moving parts to this surprise proposal. I actually posted the video of it online. It's created somewhat like a short film. Check it out on giantthinkers.com or youtube.com slash Ram Castillo. For those that have seen it and wrote to me via social media, thank you so much once again. Vivian and I are super grateful overwhelmed and still floating on cloud nine. Big love to you all. Now, our guest is a specialist coach in deep listening. He's helped many individuals to massive corporations from Google to Microsoft to Universal. The most powerful thing I personally got out of this interview was learning how to uncover meaning in dialogue from what's said versus what's unsaid. Some of the topics we covered include how to listen deeply using the five levels of listening, the ideal speaking versus listening ratio, shadow listening styles to be aware of, and practical techniques to productively move the dialogue forward. This is a must listen for anyone that wants to truly improve the way they communicate, not just professionally with your colleagues and clients, but personally with your family, friends, and loved ones. Before we begin a super quick spotlight, I've been putting extra effort onto my YouTube channel, posting vlogs of my last USA tour, including my visit to places such as the AIGA headquarters, VaynerMedia, and the Squarespace office. Nine episodes are up as of right now. Plenty more are on the way. You can watch them all on youtube.com slash Ram Castillo. All right, let's dive in. I present to you the calm, 
kind and wise, Oscar Trimboli. Oscar Trimboli, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I've been looking forward to this all day, Ram. Thank you for having me on board. That's really good to hear. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I must give a special thanks, first of all, to our mutual friend, Tara Comerford, who is currently the VP and Managing Director of GoDaddy Australia and New Zealand. So big love to Tara if you're listening. Uh, thanks for introducing us. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were sharing a cup of coffee down at uh, a WeWork uh, location in Piedmont uh, couple of weeks ago and we just got got chatting about all sorts of things like that and she she'd been someone I'd been part of her network for quite a while and she said Oscar you're always introducing me to great people who could I introduce you to <laughs> and I said well this is what I'm trying to get the message out about the importance of listening if anyone comes to mind and sure enough a couple of days later a lovely introduction email came across both our inboxes and here we are yeah, and very timely too, because uh, speaking of listening, it's such a huge part of uh, everyone's lives. But, you know, when we talk about deep listening and, and uh, you know, that being a skill that we can certainly improve on, uh, it's a big part of, yes, being a successful designer and creative, especially when taking briefs and communicating with clients. But there are so many other ways to leverage better listening in all areas of our lives, uh, no matter what industry we're in. So first off, Oscar, I will kick things off with an icebreaker question. Yours is, what is your favorite dish to cook for friends or family at a dinner party? And people find this incredibly ironic because I'm a vegetarian and I don't eat fish, but I'm renowned for stealing a friend's recipe, Deb Young, who gave me this beautiful uh, baked salmon dish recipe uh, all the way from Indonesia. And I've been cooking that for the best part of a decade now. And it's my, people call it my signature dish. It's got lemongrass, it's got ketchup manis, it's got shallots in it, it's got chili and it's got honey in it, and it doesn't actually take long to bake. It takes about 20 minutes, and the trick is not to overcook it and leave it a little bit pink. And uh, I forgot the lemon juice uh, or lime juice, depending on what's available at the time, and I always prefer to use fresh fruit uh, for the juice rather than getting anything out of the bottle because you never know how long it's been in there or what preservatives are being used. Yeah. Um, but I always prepare it uh, first thing in the morning and leave it to marinate for at least four hours and uh, everybody loves the combination of flavours, the textures and uh, the combination of sweet and sour, which always uh, tickles everybody's taste buds. I've never tasted the dish myself <laughs> um, and uh, but everybody keeps saying that, that how much they love it so I'm always happy to make that dish for guests who come over for dinner parties very good I uh, I like the uh, the recipe it sounds great I'm gonna have to steal it off here and uh, and uh, see how we go or maybe I just come to your next dinner party <laughs> exactly I can, I can I can do both very good so Oscar where would you say your expertise lies? I would say, and other people kind of say this, and for a long time people will kind of call me Yoda and kind of go, you always ask the interesting questions because you're listening beyond the words. And today people kind of call me an expert in deep listening. And I believe that the world today more than ever with more technology to broadcast a message, with more means of communication that have ever existed in, 
entire human history, we can broadcast more messages, but our ability to actually listen to each other has dropped dramatically because we're all too busy trying to get noticed. So people say that uh, I'm the deep listener and that I'm all about trying to make an impact beyond the words and listen to what's unsaid rather than what's being said. Mm, yes. Well, this is uh, exactly what I'm excited about, uh, this whole topic, because I've, I've never known anyone to really dive into this area and put the word, you know, deep in front of listening. It's just, you know, oh, I'm a great listener, a great communicator, but to become a deep listener is, is something that uh, I'm certainly interested uh, in, in learning more about. Uh, before we get into all that, can you tell us a little about your childhood and how you grew up? Yes, I'm lucky enough to be the son of two first-generation migrants from post-war Italy, and they came to Australia in boats, and uh, that's uh, pretty important to me in the current environment in Australia. I, um, I believe migrants have made a huge contribution to this nation, and I was lucky enough to be born in Australia of um, two, um, two great post-war refugees from Italy, and I grew up um, about 45 kilometres from the centre of Sydney, in Australia. And I was really fortunate in that I went to a school that had about 22 different nationalities. We had kids from Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, uh, and the, the more recent wars and refugees were coming to Australia from there. But equally, we had um, refugees coming to our schools from, from Chile and uh, in the middle of the Pinochet regime in the 70s. We had people who'd fled Eastern Europe. We'd had the Western Europeans, the Italians, the Greeks, the French at our school. And of course, we had um, Australians. And I was very lucky to make friends um, with a guy who was an adopted uh, guy and he was a, he was an Aborigine. So we, we, I, I feel very fortunate from early on in life. I was, I was listening differently to conversations maybe compared to other people because I was trying to figure out where's that accent from rather than what they were actually saying. Mm, yeah. It sounds like, uh, that was uh, a big part of statistic that we all know about, which is over 90% of uh, communication is nonverbal, right? And uh, it, for you to interpret um, all those different cultures as, as part of communicating, and as you said, con being a connector, uh, I think uh, certainly has contributed to what you are specializing in today. I, I just come back to that research because there's a, always an asterisk next to that research mm. That people don't add on. 90% of um, communication is nonverbal when people are in relationships. So if you know the person, 90% of communication is nonverbal. But if you don't, so for example, if you're a public speaker or you're meeting somebody for the first time, that percentage is a little lower. It's closer to 50%. Um, but That's a lot lower, isn't it? It is. So that's why listening becomes a little bit more important um, and not just the, the visual cues, for example. Yeah, very, very important asterisk. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> um, and uh, just uh, real quick out of my curiosity, what, mm. what did you study after high school or did you, did you pursue studies after that? Yeah, I, um, I was uh, lucky enough and my parents uh, encouraged me, both sides of my family um, encouraged me to make sure that um, get to university in the era I grew up. That was your your path to a future of prosperity. Make sure you go and get a job. And if you were an accountant, you're never going to be out of work. 
and I guess it's one of the one of the interesting things. I went to the University of New South Wales to study accounting, and I did a cadetship with an accounting firm. And in those days, they would pay for half your books, and they'd pay for half your course fees as long as you pass the course. So you paid in advance, and they'd recuperate that at the end of um, you passing the, that particular subject successfully. And what I was doing was going out and literally counting spark plugs as an audit clerk for the accounting firm I was working for. And I'd consistently get reconciliations wrong. And just to date myself, we were doing spreadsheets on manual spreadsheets with pens and pencils. There was no concept of computers in those days. So people will get an understanding when you're doing these manual calculations. There's an opportunity for errors to come about. But my manager, Robert Quant, a very brilliant um, manager, very insightful and very thoughtful, probably about six weeks into my job placement, said, hey, Oscar, you know, you're consistently getting your er your reconciliations are wrong and they're all divisible by nine. <laughs> and what that means is you're transposing the number instead of writing 911, I would write 919 or some, something similar to that. So he read out a series of um, telephone numbers to me, 20, and I was to write those down and he, he corrected them and I only got 16 out of 20 right. And he said, Oscar, I think you're dyslexic when it comes to using numbers. And I went, oh, okay. And he goes, not much future in accounting for somebody who keeps getting their numbers wrong, is there? And uh, I was really upset at that point in time because the only thing I could visualize was the fact that um, these people had took me on board and, you know, I wouldn't work out for them. And a very, his manager, Bill Sweeney, came up to me about oh, two months later and bought me lunch and said, you're a hard worker. Um, what do you know about computers? And I said, Bill, I know absolutely nothing about computers. He goes, I knew you'd say that. That's why I'm putting you in charge of installing these new computers in our, in our accounting practice. And the reason I'm doing that is because you won't bullshit to me about anything about these computers, will you? And, and he was so clever in, in motivating me that way. And from there, my career went, I went um, installing the computers, training um, the secretarial staff at that stage who were literally typing up every document on a typewriter. They weren't using any word processing software before then. So I had to show them how to um, use the word processing software. I had to show the accountants how to use the accounting software. And eventually, um, I joined the computers together in a computer network, and that was fairly new in its time back then as well. And then my manager, Bill, asked me if I could do that for our clients and start putting accounting software into motor vehicle dealers and shipping companies and all sorts of places like that, which led me on a, a merry path of installing so many versions of accounting software over nearly a decade. Uh, it took me into a master's where I studied marketing. Uh, it took me to work for Vodafone in uh, marketing roles there. It took me into Microsoft into account management and marketing roles there. And eventually uh, leaving and going out and setting myself up as an executive coach, which is what I do today. Um, spend a lot of time deeply listening to executives, board members, chairmen, uh, around Australia and around the world 
and uh, understand how they can start to think about their thinking rather than about thinking about how they're going to solve a problem. So uh, that's that's the the twisty, windy road of where I started and how I finished up here. Fantastic. Uh, do you think everyone is a natural-born listener or is listening an intentional skill we really need to work hard at developing? If people only knew the first skill they developed at the age of 20 weeks in their mother's womb was the skill of listening. It's the skill you learn before you see, before you talk, before you breathe, before you learn to feel, you learn how to listen. And at 32 weeks, you're able to distinguish your mother's voice from any other sound in the outside world. And that's really important because it's genetically programmed in us so so we can survive so that when we come out into the big wide world, we know which sound is the mother who's going to sustain us. So every single person is a natural born listener. And yet the minute we're born, the first thing we do is we scream. We want to be noticed and we want to shout out to the world. And I think it's from that point on, we forget that we're natural born listeners. And all we do is try and get noticed by talking more and trying to get our point across. Mm. So it's interesting in corporations, our research shows that 32% of corporate executives have all had training on speaking, but only 2% have had any training on listening, and yet they spend 55% of their day listening. So for those leaders who have mastered the art of listening beyond the words, their leadership impact is extraordinary. They are able to lead in a way that may not necessarily be charismatic because they're not great orators, but they create tribes of passionate followers because they know that they're being listened to. And listening is a discipline. It's not a skill at a point in time. In any dialogue, you have to be really cautious to stay engaged in the dialogue. So back to your original question, we are born natural listeners. We forget that really quickly when we we come out screaming. And the world is set up to reward great speakers, in Western society at least. In Eastern society, it's a little different. Wisdom is revered differently. The skill of questions is more prominent than the oration that we're used to in the West. Listening can be learned, but it is a discipline that you have to be consistently practicing. In the past, I've heard you mention the 125 over 40 rule. Um, Can you elaborate on this and how does it affect our communication? Yeah, so the 125-400 rule is a simple mathematical representation of how many words per minute you can speak at. So on average, you can speak at 125 words per minute. The upper range is 200 words a minute, but then the listener starts to lose comprehension if you're up at that speed. The 400 is the average at which you listen at. So you can speak at 125 You can listen between 400 and 900 words a minute, depending on your training and your ability to comprehend and whether it's a native language of yours, for example. So what that means is, let's look at that first from the speaker's perspective. If I'm thinking about a particular concept, I can think about representing that thought at up to 
400 to 900 words a minute, but I can only verbalize 125 to 195 words a minute. So there's a huge gap of four to one between what you can say and what you think you want to say. Now, let's look at it from the listener's perspective. The same rule is true. You're listening to somebody speaking at 125 words a minute, but you can think and process up to 400 words a minute. So what happens is, for those other 300 words, you're wishing the speaker would speak faster. Great listeners continue to be focused on the speaker, and then poor listeners can either get lost in the dialogue, they can get lost in the drama of the dialogue, they can interrupt and keep consistently trying to make their point in the dialogue while they're trying to fill in those other words, or they can be really shrewd and think of all the questions that they want to ask and all the solutions they have to the problems the speaker hasn't even thought about because you're jumping ahead by another 300 words a minute. Mm. So I say in a frightfully, you know, British accent as they do when you get off the trains in the UK, mind the gap. Mm. Mind the gap between what can be spoken and what can be thought. And once you're conscious of this, it means you have to take much more time to respect silence in dialogue. Treat silence like it's another word. Give it the respect it deserves. So rather than jumping in when silence emerges, just give the speaker some time to listen to themselves. Just listen a little bit more to themselves. So the 125-400 rule is a simple four-to-one ratio that says listen three times more than you actually speak and the dialogue will become more productive. Mm, this is uh, really juicy stuff, um, and it's perfect to moving on to the five levels of listening, uh, which you talk a lot about, and I'd love for you to name the five levels first of all, and mm. then let's dive deep into each one individually. The five levels of listening are first, unlike the majority of the literature, do not focus on the speaker. Focus on yourself first. That's the first level of listening. If you have so much self-talk going on, it's really difficult for you to listen to somebody else. So we'll come back and expand that one a bit further. Second level of listening is listening to content, and that's typically words, sentences, and dialogue. The third level of listening is listening to context. This is listening for patterns in the dialogue. It's about listening to people's time orientation. Are they anchored in the past or the future or just the now? So that's the context of a dialogue. Then listen deeply to what's unsaid. Unsaid is the fourth level of listening. And I know it sounds incredibly paradoxical to listen to what's unsaid, but I'll give you a few techniques to use on that one. And then finally, listen for meaning. It's only when we understand the meaning the other person is trying to make that they move from feeling like you listen to them that you actually heard them. It's when people are heard that they'll join you in a journey. It's when people feel that you've heard them and listen to their meaning that they'll stay loyal customers or loyal employees. So the five levels of listening are listening to yourself, listening to content, listening to context, 
listening to what's unsaid and then listening for meaning. The most important listening level, and I can't state this enough, is listening to yourself. The simplest technique you can do to listen to yourself is to just connect with your breathing. The deeper you listen will be how deeply you breathe. So the deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen. The deeper you breathe, the more space you create in your mind for new ideas from speaker to land. But if you're in constant dialogue with yourself, you're creating a really noisy frequency where it's difficult for you to stay in dialogue with the other person. So you need to free your mind and create a space so that you can tune into the frequency of the other dialogue. Most literature around listening actually starts at the next level up and they say focus on the speaker and make sure you listen to the content. Nod approvingly when you notice something that makes sense to you. Paraphrase back what they say. Use lots of mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I understand. And sentences like that. The foundational level of listening is to listen to yourself. It's really, really critical to listen to yourself first. When you say uh, a breathing uh, deeply is a good sign, I guess, of, of how uh, intently you're, you're uh, listening to yourself, yeah. what, what happens when you're sighing? You've got a deep sigh or, you know, when you can hear the person kind of doing that extended breathing, uh, are they just processing the information deeper or it's affecting them emotionally or? Yeah, it's interesting because the studies have shown that speakers in great dialogue, listeners and speakers, over time their breathing tends to synchronise and it, and it synchronises at deeper levels of breathing, um, more diaphragm-based breathing and deeper breathing than the shallow sigh kind of breathing. And it's really critical if if you're conscious enough to be listening to somebody and watching their breathing, you will make amazing insights. I remember working with a client about a year and a half ago, and they, and they were talking about a particular topic, and they just raced over it. And they were talking about a situation of conflict in their workplace with uh, not only people that were working for them, but people above them, and it was a situation with a very significant customer. But as they kind of raced through describing the situation at about a third of the way through the dialogue, I noticed their breathing changed dramatically. And I came back to the point and said to her, I said, you notice the minute you talked about your boss, your breathing changed? <laughs> and she went, no. I said, just replay that conversation in your head. And she goes, oh, wow, you were right. I said, great, what's that about? because it was all about everybody else and her breathing changed quite dramatically the minute she was talking about her boss. And to be listening at that level of depth means no mobile phones, no laptops, no iPads. You are totally focused on the connection between one human and another. You can't notice that if you're trying to do more than one thing at the same time. Now, for her, that was a big breakthrough because later on we started to talking about Patterns in her dialogue that every time her boss came up in the conversation, she moved into a state of anxiety. 
And so much so that she wasn't even conscious of it. And yet when we explored that, we realized that it was only in particular situations where her breathing changed when we talked about her boss. So it's critical not just for you as the listener to be conscious of breathing, but it's also critical for you to be conscious of their listening and their breathing as well. Mm. Because people who are in great dialogue will, as the science has shown us, tend to synchronize their breathing and deeper the more dialogue they're in. Honestly, don't overread the sighing sometimes. They could have just had a late night. Yeah. <laughs> they, they could just be coming up for breath themselves. Um, but noticing breathing, noticing facial shape, noticing the what's happening with their eyes, especially uh, whether their eyes are looking up or they're looking down, will give you an insight into how their brain's processing. So if you're up and right, you're typically looking to creative imagination. You're trying to create something from scratch. And if you're looking down and left, you're going to history and you're pulling up artifacts from the past, which, again, if you're listening deeply, you'll start to notice these things. And when you see incongruence, particularly in job interviews, for example, if you ask people to give you an example of when they had a tough situation and what did they do to overcome it, if they go down and left, it's very likely that they're going to access something from their historical memory. If they go up and right, there's a strong likelihood they're making it up. Mm, okay. But again, you have to be super focused as a listener to pick this kind of stuff up. Okay. So the first level of listening, as you said, yourself, if, if I'm not mistaken, it is really as well about preparing yourself and being conscious of uh, being in a uh, position to listen uh, as, as best as possible, um, acknowledging where you are, your surroundings, your, um, you know, any distractions that might potentially hinder you from listening. Um, therefore, uh, that, that first uh, level, um, looking inwardly, is really on preparation, would you say? The majority of it is absolutely in preparation. Mm. I would say 60% of it is in preparation before you even enter the dialogue. But we don't want to underestimate what happens when you're in dialogue and you start to get some jibber-jabber happening. Oh, my God, can this person talk for so long? Mm. And you get in a whole bunch of self-talk about the dialogue, which means you're not paying attention to the conversation. So listening to yourself is important during the dialogue as well, but you can't do that well unless you've set up the foundation in advance. So a lot of the clients I work with in corporations today or large government departments you ask them about their calendar and they are literally in meetings from eight in the morning till seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. And they have very few gaps in between and they call it back to back to back to back meetings. <laughs> yeah. This is really poor preparation for listening. To listen well, you have to set an intention for the dialogue. So good listeners listen to the speaker and great listeners listen to progress the dialogue. The dialogue is the joint understanding between two parties. So just listening well is you listening to what the speaker's saying, but great listeners progress the dialogue. So before you come to a dialogue or a discussion or a phone call or a video conference, you need to set your intention for that. So what I say to my clients is if you're doing the back-to-back-to-back-back -to -back -to -back -to -back thing and you're going from room to room or people are coming in to see you, 
just take a moment, no more than 15 seconds, and pause and breathe and hold it and then ask yourself the question, what's your intention for this dialogue? Mm, it's very helpful. And, and if you just pause for that long, you're going to connect with your breathing straight away. Now, my clients struggle with that. So what I do to help them out and move that from something Oscar says in a quiet room where they've got lots of space to what happens when I move out into the real world? If they wear a watch, I get them to move their watch from the hand that they have their watch on to the other hand. So every time they look at their watch, it's a signal to them to go, where's my listening intention? So if you go to look at time on, on my watch, is on my left hand. If I move that to my right hand, every time I go and look the time, I go, oh my goodness, my watch isn't on that hand. Oh, it's on the right hand. Oh, that's right. It's a reminder to me to set my intention for listening. And I ask clients to take the 90-day challenge and just have their watch or a ring on a non-preferred finger. Mm. So people will tend to, um, when they get distracted, they might go and touch their ring or they might look at their ring, put it on the other hand, or put it on a non-preferred finger. Again, it's a reminder for them, what's my intention here? Now, depending on your skill level, anywhere between 21 days and 90 days, you can develop a new habit. So all I say is for, for your listeners out there, if you can just set a habit just for 15 seconds before you enter any dialogue, to breathe and hold for 15 seconds, that will transform the way you come into a dialogue and you'll have a strong foundation for listening, mm. not just to the speaker, but also to the dialogue. Solid, solid tip there. Um, all right, content number f- number two of, of the levels. Yeah, so this is, you know, if you think about what I was talking about with Deb's recipe earlier on, content is the ingredients of a great recipe. And um, the context is the recipe and the content is the ingredients. If you're not listening to the words, if you're not listening to the sentences, if you're distracted, if you're not patient, you're going to get lost really quickly in a dialogue. So it's not only listening to the words, which is obvious, but it's listening to the silence and honoring that gap and treating silence as if it was another word. It transforms the dialogue, particularly if you're an interrupting kind of listener or a shrewd kind of listener, where silence is a gap that gives you the commercial break to say what you want to say. But if you listen fully to silence at the content level, you allow the speaker to catch up. You allow the speaker to reflect on the other 400 words they haven't said and collect their thoughts and provide that content in a really powerful and succinct way to you. Listen to the words completely and listen to the sentences completely. And so if someone's racing off with you know, getting something off their chest, for example, or mm. uh, talking about an issue that they're passionate about. So they're just racing, right? Yeah. Um, what do you recommend we be doing during this time of looking at them? Uh, and apart from looking at them and potentially nodding if, if we're uh, connecting with them uh, eye to eye as well, mm. what, do you, what do you suggest we do? Oh, just let them completely exhaust themselves for what they need to say. Mm, yeah. 
Okay. Because most of us come to a dialogue trying to find a solution. Not, not everybody wants a solution. Some people just want you to listen. It's a very good point. Yep. I can totally empathize with that um, for, you know, being on both sides of the fence, I guess, you know, we've all mm. been in um, various types of professional and personal relationships and, and yeah, sometimes you just want to, you know, you're not actually looking for a, uh, a response because no response will suffice. It's just literally being, you know, someone acting as a soundboard. Yeah, or a witness to the dialogue. And I think yeah. it's incumbent on the speaker at that point to go, look, right now, Ram, I just want to get something off my chest. It's going to sound like an absolute ramble. Don't worry. I just need you to hear me out. And when we get to the end, maybe we can figure out what to do. But until then, you know, let me go. But I don't think as Westerners, we don't talk in really high context like that. We don't preface what we're going to say. When you move into Japanese and Chinese language orientations, the, the language is much more nuanced and, and much higher context. But Westerners tend to just go straight in. It's like, right, bam. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk because I want to be heard. So let's chat about context a bit, uh, which is the third level, right, that you mentioned. Mm. Um, what should we know about this? So, so if you think about a bowl of rice and it's a plain bowl of rice, context is the spice or the flavoring or the salt or the pepper that creates a totally different context for you to think about the dialogue. So when you're listening at words, it gives you a certain insight. When you listen at context, you're going to get a nuance that's quite unique. When you're listening at context, you want to start to listen for patterns. Are they always using negative phrases or are they always using positive phrases? Are they always talking about the past or are they always talking about the future? Are they talking about themselves individually or are they talking about themselves as part of a collective? Do they spend a lot of time talking about internal stuff to them or the organization or do they spend a lot of time talking about external stuff, external to them and external to the organization? Are they big picture people when they talk or are they detailed orientated when they talk? So listening to the connections in the words and noticing the patterns of how people speak gives you a really interesting and powerful way to say back to them, hey, Ram, I've noticed that you spend a lot of time talking about the importance of what's outside our organization. And they go, yeah. And why is that? And then they'll tell you, and that's where you start moving up through unsaid and meaning. Mm. So it's really critical that, you know, most, most, most good listeners kind of at content and a little bit of context, if, particularly if you've had any training in neuro-linguistic programming or NLP, yes. you're, you're trained to notice the patterns because the patterns become the habits. So if you notice the patterns they use in the language, you can start to notice the way they'll bring habits in the way they want to make change in the world for themselves. Yeah, and what a great, what a great, uh, you know, uh, I guess pillar in a way to have under our, you know, under our arsenal of of uh, communication skills to be able to identify context and then go right that that particular uh, person uh, I have a deeper understanding of now because I can see these patterns and I can almost 
get a gauge for their perspective. I can be a bit more empathetic and you can start to see things from their point of view as they're, as they're expressing that rather than going, just blocking it off and going and, and being ignorant about it and, and saying, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and it's intriguing to me as I train in, in this topic, people go, oh, how do I notice the patterns when I'm, I'm just not at that level of consciousness? The speaker will give you the answer. So I talk with some people who work in really complex fields, um, sterile manufacturing, um, actuaries in insurance companies, people running safety for airlines, and everything in between. So for me, it's really hard for me to know their context. So here's a simple little hack for everybody out there particularly if, you know, you're working with a range of clients in a briefing profession. You can simply say, I've noticed there's a pattern in the story to you. And if they make their own reflection, Mm. oh, yeah, I tend to be really negative when it comes to talking about Jane. Oh, Oh, yeah, I really get hung up on stuff when I'm not perfect. By them saying that, you're helping them with their own unsaid, which is the next level up. But sometimes you don't have to be an FBI agent trying to figure out what the pattern is. If you can't, just use that simple hack and go, hey, do you notice the pattern in your stories? Yeah, for sure. It's almost yeah. um, allowing them to, uh, I guess it's it's like when we're kids, right? Our, our parents would almost... Um, you know, allow us to verbalize what we did wrong um, at a certain age when we were conscious of, of of what we did wrong, so that we would, I guess, uh, get into the practice of owning up to to that thing and learning something on our own accord. Um, and then it became a dialogue rather than just being uh, <laughs> being told or you know what to do or getting in trouble. Um, it's far more memorable, isn't it? It's, a, it's an anchor, essentially. And this is what great leaders who aren't charismatic, who listen really deeply, who help bring meaning and context to change for an organisation, they let people understand that it's not only a change the organisation needs to make, but it's a change they need to make personally themselves at an individual level. But unless they come to that insight themselves, they don't know how to make sense of that change and it's people who can help people understand this at this very simple level that very quickly drive change much faster, much faster than their competition, much faster than um, what may be happening in patterns outside the market as well. So it's a really it's a really powerful technique and it's the inflection point at five points of listening. From this point on, we get into much deeper stuff we get into what's unsaid. And again, this comes back to the mathematics of the 125-400 rule. The unsaid is three times more likely to exist in the speaker's mind than they've actually verbalized. When a speaker comes to you in a dialogue talking about a topic, they've probably been thinking about this idea for a long, long time, much longer than they've spent talking to you about it. Their mind is a washing machine and it's just on wash cycle, bouncing this idea around in their head. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever opened a lid in a wash cycle, the water looks really murky. 
it looks really dark and it's not much fun. But the minute you speak, that's the spin cycle on the washing machine and you're getting your thoughts out. But imagine a spin cycle that only emptied two-thirds of the washing machine or one-third of the washing machine and you still got all this other dirty water sitting in the wash. The unsaid is moving the rest of the dirty water out of your mind and out through speaking so that you can say or express that idea a little bit more. And again, you don't have to come up with amazing questions to help them with the unsaid. The most powerful phrase my clients say I use is simply they'll say, you know, I was talking about it and, you know, that's really all I've got to say. And all I respond with is, and? And a lot of the time, just using the word and is a prompt for them to think, oh, maybe there is something more. And again, I'll prompt them with and, and then I'll prompt them with and. And I won't do and, three ands in a row. I might say something like, I'm, I'm really curious if we had more time, what you'd say. Or if we came back in 10 years' time, what do you think would be the most important thing you haven't said so far? And that gets them to explore their own thinking in a really different dimension. Mm. And they're going through their mind and going, yeah, well, I wonder what would be important in 10 years' time. Oh, I know. Or if time's really short preempt them before your time's up and go, look, Ram, um, we've only got about five more minutes to go. Is there anything else you'd want to say thinking about this particular topic? Mm. And that gets them going through their mind in a slightly different orientation. And then all of a sudden, the washing's clean, it's hung out on the line, and everybody's had a great dialogue, but you have to explore what's unsaid. Yeah, it's very great for uh, when speaking to clients and trying to dig out why they're unhappy about their current business or what uh, you know their frustrations are and where they want to get to next um, with with the communication pieces that they're looking to to get out there. Um, very, very cool. So the fifth level of listening is meaning. Yeah, and it's listening for meaning is where people start to feel this real connection that you've been heard. Listening for meaning helps people make sense of their stories. It helps them make sense of their stories through context. It helps them make sense of their stories through what's unsaid. And when you start to listen at this really fundamental level, I, I do something in my work called narrative coaching, which links stories of multiple decades of people together. I remember working with a client who was incredibly anxious when uh, the uh, sirens went by in any place they worked because at the age of eight, their parents owned a dry cleaning business and they would come home after school. But on this particular day, he'd come home from school and the house, something wasn't right, something was smelling wrong, and he rang his parents and said, something smells like it's burning. and they said, hang up the phone, call the fire brigade, and leave the building. And as that was all happening and he hung up the phone, called the fire brigade, he got cut off on the phone after he'd made the call because the phone line melted with the fire. Now, he got out of the house and he was all good, but he's very anxious. 
And the, the meaning he made from that story was the I get anxious when I hear fire engines. Mm. And I, I just asked him a simple question, what else could it mean? And he says, well, I don't know. What else could it mean? I said, what do you think it meant to your parents? And he goes, I've never thought about that. I said, did the house burn down? And he goes, well, no, it wasn't completely burnt down. You know, we saved half the, half the building. And I went, wow, okay. So what meaning could your parents make out of that? And they went, oh, well, I guess I could be a hero because I saved the half the house. <laughs> I go, yeah, that's one way to look at it. And he went, sirens don't bother me anymore. Mm. I said, well, I'm glad you've got a new meaning for that story and helping people explore what that means. So an example in briefing professions, they could always be talking about, you know, we have to do this because our competition's better. What else could that mean? Could mean there's more opportunity because competitors are in the market. Maybe we need to look at that differently. So if you're starting to layer from listening to yourself, listening to content, listening to context, listening at the unsaid, and then finally you come to meaning, that person has had a totally transformational experience. And what they make of the story they've told themselves about this in the past, you've helped them progress the dialogue. So if you're in a briefing profession, for example, that means you're going to have a really loyal client because you've helped them find more meaning in a story they only had one meaning for. You've helped them explore their thinking four times more than anybody else, and the likelihood that you've found a better way to work with them is much higher than anybody who walks in and just does a standard brief with them. Yeah. So most people are only trained to listen to content. You can see the power this brings to reduce chaos, confusion, and rework if you focus on listening at much deeper levels. When it comes to shadow listening, uh, firstly, what is shadow listening? And secondly, what are the shadow listening styles we should be aware of? Yeah, so I use these terms, shadow listening styles, to kind of describe the styles of listening that we we'll kind of have a giggle to ourselves about because we know we're guilty of them. Yeah. So it's funny. When I speak at events, um, I'll, I'll speak and then people come up to me at the end or or off stage or something like that and they go, you've got to come and meet my friend John. John is a terrible listener. John is exactly that interrupting kind of listener that you were talking about, Oscar. He's always interrupting me. And... I then say, if John was listening to this conversation, which one of the four listening types would he make you out to be? And the four shadow listening styles or the blind spots of listening, you can be a lost listener, you can be a drama listener, you can be an interrupting listener, or you can be a shrewd listener. Now, the interrupting listener is the most obvious because it's overt during the dialogue. You know, all you're doing is listening for the gap or the silence so you can make your own point. And these are the listeners, based on the research I've done, that the listener most people are frustrated with. And I'm sure while I'm talking on this podcast, people's minds are racing because they can identify 
the interrupting listener that they deal with the most. Yeah. The good news and the bad news is so can they and it just might be you. <laughs> you might be their interrupting listener as well. So the trick is when you're an interrupting listener, what you've got to do is look at the other side of the coin and become a curious listener. And a curious listener doesn't try and cut people off. They just keep exploring the landscape of the ideas and the discussions. They're genuinely interested in what the speaker has to say. And the big word that listeners focus on are possibilities. What are the possibilities? But again, if you're a really curious listener, be careful. You could ask too many questions and it might feel like an interrogation for the person you're talking to. Mm, yeah. The next shadow listening style is the shrewd listener. Um, they're like detectives. They, um, they play in the shadows, and, but you almost think they're listening to you, but they're not. These are the listeners that have that kind of glazed look on their face, even though they're looking at you directly. What they're doing is they're listening to you, but they're trying to solve your problem. And they're trying to solve your problem but being shrewd enough not to try and answer the problem. But what they're doing is getting lost in the dialogue and they're getting lost in solution and they're not actually listening to you. So although 2% of societies had training on listening, we can pick up instinctively when people aren't listening to us. We don't need training on how to know when somebody's not listening to us. And the shrewd listener is the interrupting listener who's looking for a solution and then will try and solve your problem rather than ask you a couple more questions about what you haven't said so far. Mm. So the alternative to the shrewd listener is the progressive listener. The progressive listener should be focused on progressing the dialogue and making sure that the speaker can get to an insight of their own. They help create momentum in a dialogue and move the dialogue forward, not just the speaker. And their big word is growth. But the critical thing is for the people who are shrewd listeners, moving a dialogue too quickly is a danger they need to be aware of because they might have created that glazed look in the eye for the person they're speaking to. Yeah. So the last two shadow listening types um, are the dramatic listener. The dramatic listener is people who love listening and say, oh, tell me more. Oh, you must have felt terrible. <laughs> and they did it again to you. Oh, my word. How did that feel? You must have been so frustrated. And they get lost in the drama of the dialogue that they forget their position is to help move the speaker forward. Mm. You know, the, the, the dramatic listener has to understand that they these are you know you're a dramatic listener when you love the gossip <laughs> if you love to gossip the chances are you're a dramatic listener and what you're doing is you're feeding the dialogue to be well beyond what it needs to be and a dramatic listener needs to become a systemic listener and a systemic listener not only listens to the dialogue, but jumps up, looks at the bigger picture and understands how to connect the dots for the speaker 
So not just getting lost in the drama and telling them, so unfortunate to work for such a terrible boss. Oh my goodness. And you've been doing this for three years. Oh, oh, that must be so draining. How does that feel? Oh, and you have to go to lunch with them as well. You can see the dramatic listener out there very easily because they love the drama. The last listening type is the lost listener. They're the ones who don't even turn up to the dialogues because they're so busy talking to themselves. They've forgotten to breathe deeply. They've forgot to set a listening intention. All they're there to do is relax in the conversation, and the longer that person speaks, the less talking they have to do. But they're not an equal partner and they're not progressing the dialogue. So lost listeners need to understand that they need to become intentional listeners. They need to be focused on noticing not just what the other person's saying, but noticing what the dialogue is doing. Is the dialogue stuck or is the dialogue moving forward or are we repeating points? So these four shadow listening styles are really easy for us all to identify in others. The trick is. How did we notice them in ourselves? And with those four listening styles, lost, dramatic, interrupting, and shrewd, I'm sure everybody can quickly understand that listening is both situational and personal. So you don't have a default listening style per se. You have a default listening style depending on who you're interacting with. So you may be a dramatic listener when it comes to your social life, But when it comes to the business world, you might be an interrupting listener. So it's really important to understand the nuance there. Yeah, that's really great stuff. Uh, You've really uh, gone in deep with with the five levels of listening and the the four uh, shadow listening styles. And I think that you know, we really had to cover those in order to fully understand the context of what you're uh, talking about and how we can observe ourselves and others in in our various interactions you know not just with clients but you know our relationships and um, speaking with our loved ones and family members as well um i have a few more questions before we wind down oscar uh one i really want to ask you is around leadership Uh, i've found that the best leaders have been great listeners Uh, for those looking to move into leadership what would be one practical piece of advice uh, for those struggling to inspire and lead their little team and eventually an organization? Great leaders that are great listeners understand the intersection of the organization and the marketplace. So whether you're trying to build a, a startup organization or whether you've got an existing big business that you're leading. Um, you need to understand that listening happens at the intersection of your marketplace and your people. And most good listeners listen to one or the other. So I see a lot of people in, in chief marketing officer roles that I work with, they might be extraordinarily good at doing market research. They may be able to distill that market research down into some key insights and what the action plan is. But what they struggle to do then is marry that up to to the organizational capabilities. And that requires listening on a deeper level. The opposite is true as well. You might understand your organizational capabilities really well, but you may not know how to marry that up to the marketplace and what the marketplace needs. Going back in my history, 
one of the things I was renowned for doing as I took on new teams is we took the teams to the contact center or they went on sales calls. I remember one time, brand new team, I, I was fortunate enough to be appointed as a leader and we had our first team meeting and we we'd had a, a conversation about what was important to the team. And one of the things they kept talking about was they were struggling to connect with with what our customers really needed. I said, great. So I came back the following meeting and I said, every week for the next month, we're going to go out to the contact center. We're going to put on a set of headphones and we're just going to listen to the dialogue between a call center operator and the customers that are coming through. And your role is only to take notes. So I don't want you to interact with the calls. I don't want you to fix anything. I just want you to take notes. And that capability became quite renowned in our organization at Microsoft because um, very few people were doing that. Most people were getting summary research data. But listening at a deeper level, our team started to notice the language that people were using on the call was not matching up with the marketing brochures we were creating. It wasn't matching up with the scripts we provided with the contact center operators. Our language was way, way more sophisticated than the customers wanted to hear. And more importantly, the language we were using wasn't the problems the customers were ringing about. Mm. By listening at that level, the team went around and built a totally different marketing and business plan for the next financial year. And our, our results followed as well. But the critical thing is for leaders, just listening is important. Making sure that staff and customers feel they're heard is very different. I was working with a, a client in the insurance industry and they're going through massive change at the moment. Technology is changing their business. Competition is changing their business. And this leader was really struggling to get the kind of performance they needed. And we sat down, we had a chat and he talked about how he'd been listening to his staff all around the country. And his definition of listening was he'd sent them three questions and asked them to reply via email. Now, what that meant was he collected great data. What it meant was he was listening, but what his staff didn't feel like, they were being heard. And it's only when they started feeling like they were being heard that they were interested in being part of the change. So I talked with him and I said, what do you think? we could do differently in terms of listening to the staff. I said, if you really cared for these staff, what would you do? He says, I'd probably go and see each one of them individually. I said, well, there's 280 staff, so doing 280 one-on-ones is probably going to be not as efficient with time as you would like. Maybe do a one-to-five meeting. And we set up a structure for this guy to go in and talk to the staff. And he had the exact same three questions, but as the staff talked, he started taking different notes and he started playing back a summary at the end of every meeting to go, this is what I heard you say. And a lot of times he got it right, but sometimes he didn't and they'd kind of say, no, we meant this and we meant that. But the difference is the first time he ever did it collected via email, he never did anything with them never did anything with the information. So although they felt heard in the meeting, what he did was more powerful that every single month, that summary he put together, he had an action plan and he showed the staff exactly what he was doing to get 
financial resources, people resources to solve these challenges that the staff were having. The transformational performance of that team was quite extraordinary and he he became their manager of the year for this approach. But all he was doing was listening. But sending an email out with three questions, that's not listening. But turning up, listening, taking notes, and then coming back to the team every month and telling them what you're going to do, that's leadership. Mm. So I think we can listen. As long as we listen with care and we take action, it'll make a huge difference. And that's the difference between managers and leaders. Yeah, that's a that's a really great approach. I, I love that technique. I'm gonna have to uh, keep that one uh, in the back of my mind for sure. Uh, now, Oscar, uh, a question I ask most of my guests: uh, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to uh, junior Oscar Trimboli, uh, perhaps the Oscar finishing high school, what would you tell him? I would say you're good enough for whatever you want to do back yourself nice yeah i uh i think that uh my my younger self would uh, certainly appreciate appreciate that too um and and all the listeners too uh so oscar who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life uh you know a person that has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential i've been so fortunate that's I've had the opportunity to have access to a great number of these and kind of narrowing it down to one was tough, so I'm going to narrow it down to two and make them really quick stories. Go for it. Uh, John Wood, founder of Room to Read, has built more libraries in the third world than McDonald's. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, he, he believes that people need not a helping hand but a hand up. He makes every village that he builds a library in a contributors 50%. So they have to contribute 50% of the labor or the materials to build these libraries. And unlike other non-government organizations, when they leave, the buildings become derelict and fall into disrepair. Every single library John has built in the world it still continues to be used today and the libraries they have created create educational opportunity in the villages that they're part of and create economic opportunity for those villages because educated people can see the world from a far different perspective because they can travel through space and time through the power of books. Mm. And uh, Room to Read um, is an organisation that uh, John created and it's in his twelfth uh, year now of um, building over thirteen thousand libraries in the developing world and making a difference there. So John's the first big thinker that I kind of come to think of. The second one is Annie Crawford uh, from Australia, and John's from the US. And Annie started a charity in two thousand and five called Can Two, and Can Two means you can too. And she'd set up an organization that trains people for first time half marathon, marathon, or ocean swimming up in one, two, three, four kilometers, ocean swims. And her, her father had passed away from, from cancer unexpectedly at a very young age in his early 50s. And she set up this organization because she had a belief that 
too many cancer researchers were spending way too much time applying for cancer research dollars rather than actually researching cures for cancer. So she created the Cantu Foundation, which provides multi-year funding to up-and-coming researchers in cancer research. This is across all research types. And uh, 11, 12 years later now, Cantu has raised $18 million, funded significant breakthroughs in ovarian cancer, in breast cancer, in cancer of the liver. And she's done that by playing to her own passion, which is about fun, fitness, and friends. And over that period of time, they've trained 17,000 people who've run their first half marathon, marathon, triathlon, or ocean swim series. And um, she's done that in a really effective way that's built an organizational culture that sustains itself well beyond her efforts and created a national organization that will cure cancer. Mm. And uh, John and Annie are two people that inspire me every day to go, am I making the biggest impact possible with the power of listening? Yeah, they sound incredible. Um, I'll have to uh, reach out to them and and see, uh, you know, what their story is about and, and who knows if they're up for it, uh, get them on the show. <laughs> um, so why not? Yeah. Um, Oscar, uh, this has been great. Uh, what's next for you and everything you're involved in for this year and beyond? Uh, well, Sunday, um, a half marathon with Cantu and, uh, September, a half marathon with Cantu. And then we go over to New Zealand to run the first Queenstown half marathon with Cantu. And then I start the ocean swim series. So, uh, yeah, outside of work, that's uh, a big focus for me and my wife, Jenny, to make sure that uh, we both participate in curing cancer through raising money for research, but actively exercising and participating in social activities dramatically reduces your chance of uh, contracting cancer as well. Mm. So that's uh, what happens uh, on weekends and weeknights. And professionally, um, finishing up my book, Deep Listening, How to Make an Impact Beyond Words. Um, I'm building a series of um, playing cards that people can use uh, before they go into meetings or to give out to someone they might be struggling with in a dialogue, which talks about the five different levels of listening. Um, Over uh, the next 12 months, I've been asked to speak at many um, venues and locations on the topic of speaking. And um, who knows, based on today, Ram, I might even explore the power of podcasts for listening. I <laughs> think there's an obvious connection there too. Yeah, yes, definitely uh, explore that. Uh, and uh, I love your book title, by the way. When's, when's your book going to come out? Uh, where are we at? June, so next month. Wow, okay. Yeah, I'll definitely get my hands on a copy and those cards sound very intriguing as well. So, <laughs> Yeah, so for your listeners, they can just go to my website on the homepage, just click on the book cover there. And uh, if you register, we'll get you guys a copy of the, um, of the book as uh, my compliments for being uh, a listener to Giant Thinking. That would be my pleasure. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Thanks for that, Oscar. Um, and, and how can listeners get in touch with you online if, if people want to reach out to you directly? Yeah, it's um it's really simple. Oscartrimboli.com. So it's O S C A R T R I M B O L I dot com. 
and uh, that'll that'll hook you up with the work I do. And if you want to stay in touch, uh, we'll uh, we'll definitely be connected. I always uh, love speaking at events and people contacting me through the website. I think we have the most interesting dialogue with the people who stay in touch with me electronically. The guys who come and speak to me after after the uh, event, just off side of stage or at the back of the room. Uh, they they tend to get their question answered really, really quickly and everybody else tends to stay in touch electronically and uh, I, I commit to, I can't give you a, uh, an immediate response, but I can give you a 24-hour response. That's uh, better than most. So, uh, yeah, thank, thanks, Oscar, for that. Uh, and uh, thanks again for your time and in sharing your stories and knowledge, most of all, uh, pouring great wisdom in this area uh, of of communication, uh, the listening part, which, uh, I certainly got a lot out of. So, uh, thank you. And it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I wish you well. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you found this practical enough to use immediately. I'd really love for you to share this episode with a friend or a loved one if you think it'd benefit them. This is what it's all about, learning and growing together, sharing this information. Forwarding on giantthinkers.com will take them right to it. Now, a little teaser for our next guest, among many things, he is the chairman of Publicist Communications Australia and New Zealand, one of the largest communication agency groups in the country. He is also CEO of Publicist Worldwide Australia with businesses specializing in advertising, digital, PR, CRM, activation, mobile, brand strategy, and design. Stay tuned for that one. Before you race off, a quick reminder to check out youtube.com slash ramcastillo for a glimpse into my last USA tour. I visited 15 cities and delivered 20 events, plus managed to visit offices such as ARGA, VaynerMedia, and Squarespace. Nine episodes are up at the moment. Plenty more are on the way. Watch them all at youtube.com slash ramcastillo. For any questions regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is on Snapchat or Instagram. Send me a message via my handle, the giant thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Oscar who said, treat silence like it's another word. Mind the gap between what can be spoken and what can be thought. 